like the idea of if I'm suffering, it means I'm doing something right. The, the, the way the beliefs like formed us in, in Christian culture where we're not supposed to listen to our bodies. If our bodies are saying like you need to rest or you need to set boundary, right? We're supposed to be able to serve and we're supposed to be able to push past our boundary points. Welcome to the Phoenix Effect Podcast with Elle, Kristen, and Dennis. We are three narrative trained therapists and we will be interviewing storytellers from all walks of life. Listen in as we hear the stories behind the stories of what people do to find belonging, purpose, and success. Stay tuned until the end to find out how to become a part of the show and to hear an important disclaimer about the difference between this podcast and what we do as therapists. Rebecca, welcome. So please tell our audience a little bit about you. Like, where are you living? Uh, What do you like to do where you're living? What kinds of things you're involved in? Just tell us about you. Yeah, I'm a therapist um, in Seattle, Washington. Um, I work with uh, primarily women and um, non-binary folks around their experiences in evangelical purity culture um, or their experiences in religious with religious trauma um, or spiritual abuse. So love doing that. Um, and in my other life, I'm an artist. Um, so that started as something that was more um, part of my own personal healing journey to start to work out some of the themes that I was wrestling with or, or unlearning or relearning, um, through my art. And it has since, um, kind of evolved into a way to join other people in that work. Um, so I work with a lot of transit, uh, transitions, um, belonging, um, <laughs> and grief and try to work with people and capturing a bit of what their experience is in a way that's um, both something that can market and then they can take with them, but also something that can be evolving over time. So that's been something that's been very rich in that. um, Yeah, I'm, I'm really loving. So that's so interesting. So like what kind of art medium do you use or do you use them all? Like, tell me more about it. Yeah, I use acrylic um, mainly um, and some charcoal and sketching, um, but mainly acrylic, which um, I don't have any professional training as an artist. And so it's been something over time that I've been taking classes and sort of learning as I go um, with ways to work with acrylic. But um, yeah, I mean, that could be a whole whole rabbit trail I go down. A lot of people um, prefer oil because acrylic is very fast drying. And so it can be hard to have a project that you're working on over a period of time, but that's actually something that I really love about it. Um, with the kinds of themes that I engage with in my art, um, personally and like in commissions is that it is fast drying. And so you work on a piece and then you come back and work on another piece. And then the, st- the story ends up getting kind of encapsulated in this. Wow. So yeah, that's so, a, wow. That's an amazing way to do it. So is it like, um, a way to kind of engage deep emotion in a different way and kind of release that? Like what's that process? Yeah. It's a way to engage emotion. Um, and it's a way to mark transitions. I think for many, um, for many of us, we have communities who have rituals around like funerals and weddings and, 
um, baptism can be a ritual. Um, but then there's the losses that don't really have a community way of marking and it can be helpful to have some rituals around those times. So art becomes a way of kind of creating a ritual there. Um, and has been in my own like healing journey as well, a way that I've marked grief that comes, um, whether it's from my own untangling from, um, like spiritual abuse or, um, grief about like chronic health concerns. It could be a wide spectrum of things, but it's a way of, it's a way of engaging with grief that's tangible and also has a beginning and an end point. Like I can come to it and work on it and then I can leave. And so that's something that's been really helpful to do with people as well. Um, and I also offer a, a group called transitions gathering and it's a four week four week space for people who are going through different transitions in life, um, to come together and create some rituals, both personally and like as a, as a community together around those life transitions that they're a part of. Um, so that's been really sweet and really sacred ground, um, to get with, be with people in that kind of way. Yeah. So that's what I get excited about. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I feel like, you know, a lot of times when we talk about transitions or work, I don't know that most people include grief in that conversation. And it seems like such a like poignant way to mark that process um, through art, but also just acknowledging that grief is present there. And I don't know that that's something that folks often feel comfortable addressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to address grief on our own. Mm -hmm. And I think when we don't have some kind of way of holding it, like some kind of container, whether that's a group or art or a ritual that we're doing, like it can be really hard to be with grief because it does feel like if we step into this, it's going to be overwhelming and I'll never be able to get out. And we do need to have those boundaries around it. And so, um, yeah, those are ways that I've found to be helpful in my own boundaries, but I think it's an important, important work for anyone who's experiencing a life transition that can be an invitation to grief over what's being left. Um, I mean, particularly when my work with religious trauma, like there's a huge grief in the untangling because even if you're untangling belief systems that don't feel like they fit anymore or harm that's been done, like in the name of spirituality or the name of God and, and healing from that, there's still a grief because you're also losing the belonging and community that you had there. Um, and so that's some of the desire to like, how do I, how, for myself and the people I work with, like, how do we help hold that? Mm -hmm. um, so that there can be space to grieve. There's always, there's goodness too. And, and yeah. that's part of the grief, right? Not just grief over the harm, but grief over the goodness and the loss of goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so much like so much of both <laughs> intertwined and it's, I think it's human nature to want to categorize things into being good or bad. Um, but the reality is like so much of our experience is really a mix of both. And, um, 
yeah, how do we hold that complexity alone? I don't, I don't know that we really can. I think we have to have containers and people to help us. Yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, display your art somewhere that people can go gander or take a commission or, or offer a commission? Well, people can always reach out to me. Um, I am on Instagram um, at heartroot, um, heart as in like H-E-A-R-T and then a little under dash and then root. Um, or they can go to my website, which is heartroot.com. Um, again, heart and little dash and then root.com. Um, and yeah, they, there's ways to work with me individually um, within my clinical practice, but also I love the getting to walk with people through life transitions. So they can find out more about that there too. Uh, but as far as my art being displayed, that is, um, that's a learning edge for me to, it feels very exposing. Um, so I do have a little, a couple, um, pop-ups in more private institutions that it's available and people can see it, but, um, yeah, that's, that's some of my own like ongoing journey too. Of like, what does it look like to offer, like take up space and offer something out? Um, so complicated question, Kristen. <laughs> yeah. She's good with those. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll link your info in the show notes. So if people want to find you, they can do that easily. And, um, speaking of offering, I'm curious if you, have anything else you want to offer in the form of a story today? I do. Yeah. I was thinking about belonging um, and places in my own life that I've come to learn what it is to belong. And I think one of the biggest places for me has been my body. Um, growing up in evangelical purity culture, there's a lot of messages around either I mean, directly or indirectly, indirectly, um, that my body is not mine. Like it doesn't belong to me. And so I was thinking about in my own work with belonging, like a lot of it has been like, how do I come to understand how I belong to myself and belong to mm -hmm. my own? So I wanted to bring a story around that. Um, and this happened when I was 17. I sat in a circle of teenage girls as our leader, not, not much older than ourselves, and did our conversation. This overseas trip was the first summer that I had ever worn jeans, even if they were ones that were several sizes too big. Now my jean-clad knees were drawn close together as I perched on a wooden chest, not quite comfortable enough to sprawl on the floor like some of the girls around me. Our leader, Amy, began facing each girl in the room. You're beautiful, good night. We were laughing, her tone was playful. And yet as she moved closer to me, my stomach clenched and a lump rose up in my throat. Years and much therapy later, I would recognize my reaction as panic and shame. But at the time, I only felt a desperation to leave. Rebecca, you're beautiful, good night. I turned my face away before she spoke the words, or rather, I felt an invisible force forcibly turning my face away, 
a force that I would later come to understand as shame. I was horrified at my response, but I felt powerless to turn my head back to receive her words. I waited for her to move on to the next girl to allow space for me to gather my sense of dignity and control. But instead she noticed my shame and she repeated the words again and again with fierce gentleness. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. It felt unbearable to meet her gaze. I kept my head down, but internally I raged against myself. I don't know how long I heard her words of blessing, how long I was intensely aware of every person's attunement to my contempt, but I do know that a tear ran down my cheek in a rare moment of vulnerability. Years later now, as a therapist who works with fragmentation, I understand and I can hold that sensitive 17-year-old with compassion. I can see that the part of her that was energized by terror worked to hide and protect from the kind gaze of another. And I see that the part of her that longed for blessing and surrendered to it, letting a tear escape through my protectiveness. The next morning, I woke up feeling light. I felt light. I felt beloved. I felt bold in the experiential knowledge that I had been known, but I hadn't been left alone. The girls remembered my face from the night before and reminded me of Amy's words throughout the day. Wherever I went, I was met with a greeting that I was beautiful. Even though it was playful, the words gently sunk into my body, loosening the protectiveness that had used contempt as a way to hold myself together. I felt held by the community around me held by their words of honor. I thought that at 17, that was it. That had done it. I was healed. I would never suffer from shame again. That lasted until my plane touched back down in the States and I returned back to my daily life and home. But Amy's blessing lingered for me. I had tasted goodness that challenged my experience of scarcity. And I had an invitation now to begin to consider what it meant to belong to my own body. The beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I feel, um, I feel really connected to that story. Um, and it feels very alive in me as you're sharing that. And I'm wondering how you feel after, after sharing that with us. Hmm. I felt really connected to that 17 year old. Um, mm-hmm. And just mindful of, mindful of the ways that like she and and I have learned to belong to my body um, that I couldn't have imagined at the time, or or if I had imagined, I don't think it would have felt attainable. Mm -hmm. So I felt a lot of gratitude there and compassion for all of, all of the ways that would have been unimaginable at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like so often when we engage stories, they tend to be stories of, um, like misattunement or people missing us or not receiving something that we needed to receive and the, the consequences of that. Right. And this strikes me just as a story of, of finally receiving something or being attuned to and the unbearableness of that, like, how hard it is to, to actually be seen or to actually be beloved and to be cherished by others. 
it's not a side of the story we talk about very often. Yeah. Kindness feels so unbearable Mm -hmm. when we're in that, when we're experiencing so much shame. Um, Yeah. I think kindness invites us to grief and kind of along the lines of what we were saying earlier, like I didn't have, I didn't have community back in my home or church or even like belief system that gave a lot of room for grief. And so to have kindness like that invited me to soften my heart and to see the ways that I hadn't been attuned to or that I didn't really belong to myself, like that felt really unbearable. Yeah. Too much. Which I think you're right. That is not something we talk about very often. Yeah. My mind keeps on sticking back to like the very, it might've been the first few sentences and a mention of these jeans that you were wearing. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) yeah, my assumption is that you, you know, wore a lot of skirts. Is that, is that accurate? Okay. Nod of the head. So I'm, I'm just curious how that is involved in this story. Like, what did those genes have to do with how you're feeling in your body and what's going on for you that makes this moment so poignant for you? Yeah, it's interesting because I've never connected the genes to this moment, but I mean, I, I included it in the story, so Mm -hmm. it's connected there. Um, the, it was a big deal for me to wear those jeans. They were so ugly but I was so proud of them. <laughs> um, I had never, I grew up in a context where m- modesty and like purity, particularly like purity, if you're in a female body was really emphasized. And the way that that looked in my family was we wore all of the girls wore dresses. Um, and I had gotten to a point, um, where I was, I was feeling the, I was feeling the bind of, I, this is a way that I belong, like to have long hair, to have a dress. Um, not that those things are bad in themselves, but for my family, like it meant belonging to a theology that actually didn't give me agency over my own body. And I was starting to feel very discontent with that. And at the same time, there was a lot of trepidation that I had in wearing those jeans because I felt that this was a form of rebellion um, or transgression, which in a way it actually was. Um, And I have a very different perspective on like how that transgression is now. But at the time it was a big, it felt like rebellion. So to be in that room with Amy telling me something about myself that, I mean, I, her words were, were more around like seeing and attuning to me and for me to belong to this group of girls. Um, well, I was in a body that was rebelling against my theology, the theology that had been handed down to me. think was a complex complex moment yeah I can't help but wonder if they're connected right like you're you 
you're wearing jeans and that's kind of signifying that you're making a shift. And in that shift, you're now with a group of people that can also attune, which is also different. And then you also have this moment where you're given a blessing and there's another shift and you let it in Hmm. for maybe one of the first times. I don't know. How does that feel to you? Does that sound, is that tracking? Yeah, it resonates with me. Um, Yeah, it resonates with me. And I think even having, I haven't thought about this element of it before, but even in having like an embodied action of wearing jeans, um, kind of be the, something that prepared me to be able to, as much as I like resisted Amy's blessing, like the little part of me that was able to let it in just a little bit. Can you tell us more about the war that was going on inside of you when you got the blessing? At the time, I didn't recognize it as shame. Um, now I, now I would, but I, the war was that I, I felt consciously like, I think there's truth to what she's saying. Like, I understood that she was being playful. I understood that this was a moment of like kind of bringing the group of girls together. Um, And at the same time, I didn't understand at the time why there was so much fear that came up in my body and why I couldn't look at her in the eyes. And so the conflict was more around like, what's wrong with me? Like, there's something wrong with me that I can't receive this or I can't. I can't even look at her as she's saying it. Right. Um, and she said it, it was probably about five minutes, um, where she was repeating this. And I, to the point where the other girls were crying and saying like, please look at her. (laughs) And I felt frustrated because I felt like I, I really want to, and yet I can't. Right. And I think as I've over the years experienced more healing and come to understand like the bigger systems that I was a part of that had told me it was wrong to, um, it was re it was, it was prideful to take up space. Um, that it was, my job was to be pure and modest, not beautiful. <laughs> um, that my body didn't really belong to me. Um, you know, at the, my body was a living sacrifice, right? Like my body, was intended, um, for holiness, right? Like I couldn't trust my body. My heart's deceitful above all things who can know it. (laughs) I'm guessing that is a familiar verse. Mm -hmm. And so all of these messages were in my body in ways I didn't really even fully recognize at the time because there was just so much a part of my lived daily reality, but they came up as shame as Amy was speaking something different. Um, and a longing. And a longing. Right. Yeah. 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 Can a you long- tell me about the longing? Uh, I, I, there's a part of me that longed to, to be able to receive what she was offering. And yet, like my desire was not something that was also, I didn't know that I was, it was okay to have desire. Right for that, a desire for, um, blessing. I think in the, in the 
particular Christian context I was in, suffering was considered noble, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would have said it exactly in those words. Um, but the emphasis on like dying to yourself, um, rejecting desires, right, of your heart, because that was going to lead you into sin, um, or you couldn't trust your heart's desires. And so as I feel that longing in the moment, right, like there's that, there's that war around like, is this an okay longing? Can I trust it? And it sounds so simple, right? For a 17 year old to want to hear that she's beautiful, right? But for you, this was a deeply complicated statement. It was a deeply complicated statement. Yep. And how does it feel now to, and I'm also kind of curious, which desire are we talking about? Was it the desire to be connected with Amy? Was it the desire to feel connected to a group? Or was it a desire just to be seen as beautiful and to want to be beautiful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think there's, elements of all three in there um but the desire to be connected to the group was the deepest one there right if I was the only if I'm the only girl in this group that can't receive her blessing right then that puts me outside of the group um but in reality and I guess Kristen this goes with your question around pants earlier reality I already was outside of the group Mm -hmm. Uh, like I already had I already knew, oh, there's something different. There's something different with me, right? I'm on the outside and my attempt to fit in was getting these pair of two big jeans from the Goodwill then. Um, But it didn't change the shame that I had in my heart um, around not, not really belonging there. Yeah, it's so interesting that you see yourself as not belonging there. And again, I wasn't there, so I don't know the what was going on or the context. But when I hear that story, I hear a a, a story of a group fighting for your belonging. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they're they're fighting to make you believe that you are part of them, that you are hold value, that you are like they give you space, mm-hmm. you take up time, and the unbearableness for, for you feeling that in that moment and feeling like, Oh, I'm, I'm singled out. I'm different. You know, I I can see that. And then I, and then I see, and then I see the next day, the girls following up and like, you know, continuing that conversation. And it's, it's so, um, just fascinating to me how we can tell ourselves a story when there could be a totally different story going on. And how shame just comes and muddles that so significantly. Yeah, so significantly. Yeah, because I mean, I see now as an adult, like looking at that, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a whole group of people who are fighting for me. Mm-hmm. And yet shame at the time was kept me so isolated. Yeah, there's, I'm thinking about Dan Allender talks about shame as trauma. Um, I'm thinking about that concept where shame disconnects us 
It leads to isolation and it leads to a fragmentation in the sense of we can't, if we're in shame, right? Something has to be all bad or all good. It's really hard to hold that, the complexity of both. It sounds to me, and tell me if this is wrong, that up to that point, you had found safety in withdrawal, in like isolation, right? Mm -hmm. And so what a bind, right? Can you tell me more about how you found safety by isolation? Yeah, what a bind, right? <laughs> yeah, the bind I think is is that I I had a war with isolation because on one hand, I like there was a safety that I found in it for sure. Um on the other hand, I was in a system that a belief system that said like you're in this world, but you're not of the world. Um you're separate. And so in, in, in a family that in our particular like ideology was even more separate, um, and believed that us as a family unit were, were distinct and, and set apart from any kind of church or government or state. Um, and so there was a safety. And at the same time, I didn't know any different. Um, to me, being a Christian meant being set apart, being othered. Um, and so in those moments where I did feel the isolation, it was deeply painful. And there was also a bit of um, reassurance at the time. Now I, I would probably wonder if it, I see it more as through the lens of, of trauma, but at the time there was the reassurance of, but I'm isolated and I'm hurting because of that, but that's okay because I'm also doing something. Um, there's something righteous about being alone, right? There's something righteous about suffering, being othered because I'm making these decisions that feel holy or feel pure or feel right. And what a bind. <laughs> what a bind. If you were to accept that statement, you would have to give up all of that, right? The the hope that you could be righteous or pure or included in sounds like the church culture of your family of origin. Right. Right. That's a big risk. It's a big risk. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. this, the suffering is an indication that you're doing it right. Right. And so if you choose to go against the suffering and make a choice for yourself, that feels more congruent in, in the needs for your body and yourself, then suddenly you're doing things wrong because you're not having that blessing of suffering anymore. Right. And that feels so impossible. How oh, do you choose? So yeah. And I, I mean, I, I'm not alone in that as far as, I mean, the way it worked out, particularly my life was unique, right. Um, to me and my story, but like that idea of if I'm suffering, it means I'm doing something right. The, the, the way the beliefs like formed us in, in Christian culture where we're not supposed to listen to our bodies. If our bodies are saying like, you need to rest or you need to set boundary, right? We're supposed to be able to serve and we're supposed to be able to push past our boundary points. Um, because that that's, the, that's our flesh, right? That's our, 
that's our sinful nature versus like it's our body telling us something about the reality of our situation that we need rest or we need protection or we need a boundary. Um, so, so particular in my story, but also like so familiar in the bigger church context I was in to, to be hearing these messages. So, I mean, you've done obviously a lot of work around that, the system that you were raised in and kind of um, making, making progress from that. But I'm curious what, how did you work with this bind? Like for, especially for people who are listening, who are resonating with like, oh yeah, I feel that bind too. Like what, what is there to offer relief from that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much of how I've worked with it has had to be so embodied. Um, and you know, as an adult, I, I navigate different chronic health issues. And so in some ways it's, it's impossible to escape the reality of being a body, being in my body. Um, but there's also, I'm grateful for the ways that that's also helped me have that be more of the forefront of my healing experience. Um, so I've practiced paying attention to, well, first even just noticing what I'm feeling, which was not a thing that I was trained to do or knew how to do really. Like I knew when I was sad, I knew when I was happy, but on a day-to-day life, I, I was in a culture and had been taught to, to believe if I'm feeling distress of any kind, like my job is actually to work really hard to get out of that distress, whether that's, um, pretending that something, everything is okay, or like reading scripture that told me don't be anxious about anything <laughs> and everything give thanks. Right. And applying that in ways that help that were ways of trying to get me out of the distress I was feeling. And so a big part of my healing started even in just noticing like, what am I feeling and not putting a judgment on it? Like it's a good feeling or it's a bad feeling, but just what am I feeling and just noticing it um, and having curiosity about it. And it sounds maybe simple, but it was not a simple process for me. And, and at times still isn't right. It's still a practice to, to come to my close to myself with kindness and say, Oh, I'm, I'm feeling anxious. I don't have to say that's a bad thing. I don't have to say that I need to like force myself to feel gratitude or push away the anxiety right now. I can be anxious and still do whatever I'm doing. It's okay for me to just do it anxiously. And even that permission to myself, like has opened up a lot of space, um, to heal. So that's been a big part of my beginning of my healing. Um, because all of our, I mean, our, we think about our brains and our bodies as being separate, but our brain is in our body, right? We are, we are bodies. And so starting to try to disconnect the two created so much harm, right? I think for many of us, we're trying to overcome something that's happening in our body versus being curious and and letting ourselves be a body. And and also naming that that is okay. There's not something bad with us that we are bodies and that we have human embodied responses to things. Has there been anything that has surprised you about as you've developed that practice of 
knowing your body and and living embodied? Hmm. I think one thing that has surprised me has been my anger. Um, that continues to surprise me. It's an ongoing, Mm. but I grew up in a context where anger was not something that I think for anybody, but particularly being in a female body, anger was not supposed to be something that you felt, um, or acted on. And so I think instead coming to see my anger as something that can bring a lot of clarity when there is injustice, um, something that can say like something in this situation isn't well, um, has been surprising and also very needed. Um, as I start to kind of reclaim my own experience. Yeah. I'm so curious then how that changes as you go back and engage some of these past stories now with the ability to hold anger on behalf of yourself or the experience, how does that change your ability to process or heal or work on some of these past traumas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it helps me come into a story like this from my own, like, wise adult self to say like, I can have anger on behalf of, um, this young part of me, this younger part of me, Mm -hmm. Um, I can have kindness. I can, um, ask questions about what was happening at the time, or I can remember with, um, compassion, but I'm doing it from a place of like, I'm an adult and I can come in as an adult and I can come in with a, with a, protection coming from there. Right. And that, that helps me not be in that space of shame as that 17 year old where there's protection there too. And for good reasons, but it's protection that at the time, like kept me disconnected from relationship. Right. As an adult, I can come in with the anger that protects me and actually helps me be in relationship. Yeah. Well, without access to anger as a 17 year old, what kind of protection do you have, but shame? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Shame ends up really holding us together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It feels, feels necessary in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel so much just tenderness for the people who are listening that might have a similar experience because it's such it's such a courageous and sacred work I think to start allowing ourselves to have people who are with us in our shame Mm. um yeah it's a it's a very brave thing (laughs) Well, yeah, because shame is a feeling that isolates, you know, it's the disconnection. It's the dysregulation of feeling disconnected from people that you are going to with the expectation of connection. And so to be in shame, it's like the hardest thing in the world to want to connect to somebody in that moment because you feel like there's nothing good about or nothing that anybody would want to connect with you about. Right. There's no reason for goodness in you. And so what a courageous act in those moments to seek connection, um, because it's, you know, as you or I might have said once walking in the opposite spirit of, uh, you know, like giving yourself the thing that's needed because the thing that's really needed in those shameful moments is knowing that like, there's nothing that you can do that would actually disconnect you from 
the the need of being loved and valued and cared for by another human. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Brene Brown talks about the antidote to shame being connection, belonging. And it is in inviting people into our shame, like to be with us in our shame that we start to begin to heal. We start to have a new experience mm-hmm. relationship. I love what you're putting out into the world right now, Rebecca, because I feel like so many people are carrying around this shame. They're living disconnected and they don't have the permission to feel all those things and be close to people. And I just feel like this conversation can spark a lot of hope that you can be curious about your feelings without the judgment. And that can draw you close to people. You don't have to be alone all the time forever. Like Mm -hmm. Rebecca has found a way she can be with her body. She can accept her emotions. She can move towards people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so much we don't understand about the brain still, (laughs) but there's things that we do now know that we didn't know in the past. And one of those things is that throughout the rest of our lives, we can create new ways of being like we can create new habits. We can create new ways that we instinctively move towards connection um, or are able to experience kindness. And that's a good thing. We're not stuck in our, we're not, we're not stuck or trapped in the harm that we've experienced, right? There's, we can actually, our bodies can actually have different experiences and learn new things. And there's can be so much tenderness for that learning. (laughs) Right. Cause just like that 17 year old girl, it's so uncomfortable in that Mm -hmm. moment Mm -hmm. to do something different. You know, as a as a seventeen year old, feeling the 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 disconnection from from the body, and this being a story of coming back to the body, mm-hmm. just curious how um, becoming more embodied has changed the way you then connect with people. Hmm. I love that question. <laughs> I think about like it's being able to be more embodied in myself has also connected me more to my desire and grief. And so other people's desires and grief doesn't feel as overwhelming as it once did. Mm. Like if I can be, if I can be with my shame, right. I can, there's, there's a, it's, not, it's not easy, but it's easier to be with other people's shame. Yeah. That's a very short answer to a very good, complex question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for answering that. Anything else, Elle? I think um, I just feel a lot of gratitude for your sharing your journey of becoming embodied. I think you're the first person to come and tell a story about needing to feel a sense of belonging to yourself to Mm -hmm. be okay in your body like that that is an area we haven't touched on and I think it's just so like underrated right being in healthy connection not just with other people but to ourselves yeah 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 I, I mean I think it said so much like I work with the Allender Center um it it just said so much there. Like if, if harm happens in relationship, then healing has to also happen in relationship. 
Um, and I think that's absolutely true to relationship with others. Um, but it's also like, I think it's true in relationship to ourselves too, right? All of those parts of us that have experienced wounding and need kindness and connection, right? Like that's a relationship too, that can be healed and experience healing. And I think in this story, that's, that's kind of where it starts, right? Like you're just noticing, I want to look up and having compassion towards the part that can't, like, mm-hmm. this is how we start to bridge connection, even in your own body, with that compassion. Yeah. yeah. It's a really powerful story. I'm so glad you brought it to us. Thank you so much for listening and sitting with me and being with me there. Yeah, it's an honor. Thanks for coming. And that's where we end today. We are so glad you joined us. We want to invite you to get involved in the show. First, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. That way, you don't miss out on a future episode. Second, if you'd like to learn more about joining us and sharing your story, send us an email at phoenixeffectpodcast at gmail.com. That's phoenixeffectpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast and website represents the opinions of Elizabeth Key, Kristen Boskell-John, and Dennis Roberts, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or psychological advice. This content is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapist-client relationship.